nobody's really picking up on this and talking about this because it's an uncomfortable conversation. Half of us will eventually end up in these facilities if something doesn't change. Talking about death is not really something that our culture is very comfortable about. We as a news consuming populace, we're, we're more likely to click on that article of, you know, Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene getting in a fight in a bathroom than this really ugly reality of the end of life. It's like the kind of story that you really don't want to live in, but it couldn't be more important. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, uh, we had a little debate right before this with our mm -hmm. team, and I, I want to invite our audience to weigh in here. I was, you and I were arguing about who is more libertarian and, and I was basically trying to take your, you know, your branding from you and say, I'm more libertarian mm -hmm. than you. So I'm not mm -hmm. going to, I'm not going to throw any arguments out there. I don't want to arm our audience with my okay. rationale, but audience. I'll come and do my homework if we want to have a full on debate on the show. Cause I, I have a long list, but I'll save it for now. You save the receipts. Well, our voicemail is 321-200-0570. And especially the longtime listeners who've listened to a lot of segments, if you got ideas, bring your evidence, send in a voicemail, we'll play it. Maybe Ricky and I will have a segment at some point where we use your voicemails to debate mm -hmm. who is more libertarian. Me or Ricky. Okay. Uh, we also have <laughs> we also have really exciting news. We have a new show from the Lost Debate that's coming in the weeks ahead. It is called The Hardest Step, and uh, it's two people I'm very very close with, Cos uh, Marte, uh, who's a formerly incarcerated entrepreneur in New York City and also sits on our board, and Chris Marte, who is the local city council member uh, from our district in Lower Manhattan. They're two brothers, um, and they have a new show. Let's take a listen to their trailer. All right, we're about to get started in three, two, one, let's go. I told my story because you know what? If you get one shot in life, you gotta take it. I didn't want to do it, but I also knew that someone had to break the concrete ceiling for formerly incarcerated people. The whole conversation probably lasted 45 seconds, but it was the most consequential 45 seconds of my life. I realized most recently, I haven't even dealt with the trauma that I experienced through prison. This is The Hardest Step, a podcast about second chances and redemption. We're not here to play devil's advocate, but to have a nuanced conversation with people who had the courage to start over. Our guests are far from perfect, but who is anyway? And just like everyone else, they deserve a chance to prove that they're much more than their mistakes. The Hardest Step. We drop new episodes every Wednesday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. All right, Ricky. Well, we've got a fun show today, uh, but we're going to start with a rather tragic story, a scandal involving mm -hmm. end-of-life care that's going to make you absolutely furious. We also have new data suggesting that parents and kids may be less interested in college preparation than conventional wisdom would suggest. What do they want out of the K-12 system? But first up, let's talk about the four-day work week. A four-day work week sounds like a dream come true. The case for the four-day work week has been gaining some traction now for a few years. A growing number of companies are using it to attract and retain top talent. Today's workforce is demanding better life balance, a trend sped up by the pandemic. Four-day work weeks, hybrid work weeks, is all about how do I spend more of my time being efficient at work and doing what I want to do. Well... 
Time Magazine has named 2023 the year of the four-day work week. So there's a lot of hype about this as we kind of slowly return to some semblance of normalcy post-pandemic with all of our work lives. Uh, Meanwhile, the largest study ever confirmed that there are some pretty considerable benefits potentially to turning to a shorter work week. Um, That would be a 32-hour, four-day work week. Searches are up on Google, uh, 1,000% in the UK, about four-day work weeks. Um, And countries and companies around the world are shifting to this new model. Maryland even introduced a four-day work week act of 2023 as a potential proposal, even domestically here. And so there's a lot of talk about how we structure our work week, how productive we really are in the world of post-pandemic professionalism. And I think it's a worthwhile question. Well, let me take a step back and just give a little bit of the history here. The five-day work week, as we know it right now, hasn't always been the mainstay or the obvious choice for employers and workers. Uh, We can go back a long, long time. I mean, obviously, even time itself and the way that we measure it has changed, but we're not going to get too meta on this. Uh, But Just focusing on our country for a second, uh, there are a slew of laws that have been passed over the years to change the way we think about work. Uh, In 1866, a newly formed organization called the National Labor Union asked Congress to pass a law mandating an eight-hour workday. This is like the traditional, what we call nine to five. Uh, in 1867, the Illinois legislature passed a law mandating said workday, and employers refused to cooperate, and they had a strike, which erupted in Chicago, and that day was what we call May Day. Uh, a few years later, in 1869, President Grant issued a proclamation that guaranteed a stable wage and that eight-hour workday, but for government workers only. But this obviously, and this will be a trend that we see in some of the countries you talked about, when the government starts. Sometimes the private sector follows, which is what happened largely across this country. Uh, In 1916, Congress passed the Adamson Act, which established an eight-hour workday for interstate railroad workers. So we start to see a mandate for the private sector. But when, when we talk about the private sector, there are a few people who loom large. One of them is the Ford Motor Company, which adopted a five day, 40 hour work week. And Ford, you know, not somebody who's known um, as a friend of the workers, uh, talked about it at the time. And this is what he had to say. Uh, Just as the eight-hour day opened our way to prosperity in in America, so the five-day work week will open our way to still greater prosperity. It is high time to rid ourselves of the notion that leisure for workmen is either lost time or a class privilege. And he Mm -hmm. went on to talk about how this five-day week would encourage people to go shop on weekends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is like, if you want to have a nefarious aim here. Uh, you know, you could say that, you know, these times industry wanted people to have time to buy their products. I'm not sure I know enough to go there. That was back in 1926. And it's definitely like a pro-capitalist consumerism rationale, which is probably true. I mean, if you want, if you have an economy that's just full of worker bees who never actually enjoy their lives, it's that's not healthy for people's mental health. It's also not healthy for a, an economy that relies on consumerism. So I do think he's, he's right in that sense. And it's interesting that he, of all people, is kind of behind this shift towards a more practical and um, perhaps healthy work week. Uh, 40 hours is obviously very different from 32 hours. And a lot of the conversation here is not about like cramming everything into four days at a lot of these companies and a lot of these, and a lot of these bills, there's conversation about, um, you know, making it 
a thir- like genuine 32 hour work week where you really only are doing four days worth of work and whether in a condensed period of time, productivity might just go up, but not necessarily like forcing people to be working as hard as they possibly can and toiling four days a week. So I think that's an important nuance. But before we get into some of the more legislative fixes here, let's talk about some companies in the private sector that have shifted towards a shortened work week. They've been kind of sporadic and all over the place. Um, Panasonic is one of them. Unilever in New Zealand. Microsoft in Japan did that, and they had a 40% increase in productivity, apparently. Um, There's another company called Bolt, which does checkout services. It's based in Silicon Valley, a tech company, which went to a four-day work week after surveys showed that their employees were really overworked and tired. Um, and as a result, 94% of their workers said that they liked the system and wanted to continue, 91% of their managers. So um, pretty popular across the board. And they found that 80, over 80% of their employees said that they were more productive, that they were more efficient, and that they had a better work-life balance. So there are a few test cases here um, in, in different companies that would say this is pretty promising, although I would, I would couch that as these are companies with people who might not be doing like the labor that like a blue collar worker might be or um, have a kind of job where they literally have to show up every single day, whether that's even something like being a reporter and news doesn't stop on a four day work week schedule. So I think it's dependent on the sector and but it's 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 promising where a few companies have done it. There was this guy named Mark Efron who went on TV. He's the president of the talent talent strategy group. And he had a colorful way of making the point you just made about blue collar work and other work where people are essential and they can't take a four hour work week Mm -hmm. or four day work week. This says, hey, Karen gets to go to one extra hot yoga class a week because she gets Fridays off. Uh, That doesn't change the experience for the person who is changing beds at the local hotel, who's driving the bus, who's slinging our garbage into the back of a truck. Uh, They still need to actually show up and do the work. And so while it's lovely for the people who have the opportunity, uh, I'm not sure it really contributes to a more equitable uh, society. Yeah, so I'm with him on this. Me too. And you have these companies... And a lot of this data is really interesting with some of these companies, what they're reporting out, but so much of it is specific to the industry that they're in and whatever resources they have. And I have some major questions, for instance, for Microsoft, right? We talked about, you talked about Microsoft in Japan and their pilot program. Big question I have is, well, if it works so well, how come Microsoft as a company hasn't scaled it, mm-hmm. right? Now, Unilever, you mentioned, tested it in New Zealand, and now they are testing it out in Australia. So they are actually yeah. testing out scaling it. So that makes a whole lot of sense. But I would want to see more data here because there are counter studies. Treehouse is an example. Ryan Carson, who is the founder and CEO of that company, which is an education company, in 2015 announced the move to a four-day work week. And he pulled back. And he later said, uh, after they pulled back, he says there was, quote, there was a lack of work, like literally a lack of work ethic, end quote. Mm-hmm. And he said, quote, it created this lack of work that, uh, ethic in me that was fundamentally detrimental to the business and to our mission. It was actually a terrible thing, end quote. Now, I'm not saying his experience is illustrative of everybody, but I also think yeah. Microsoft Unilever, they're also, their experience needs to be put in its proper place. Yeah, totally. And a study coming out of the UK analyzed what would happen if the economy shifted to a four-hour work week and estimated that 
there could be as much as a 45 billion pound reduction in economic um, productivity. Um, and if productivity did go up as a result, as some people claim it might, if you shorten the work week, there's a chance that that would be reduced down to $17 billion in losses. But I think it's um, no matter how you square it, if this is applying broadly across the entirety of our economy, this is going to impact uh, certainly productivity in, in jobs and contexts where your direct output is important. And I think that like a lot of this conversation seems to be centered around as um, that clip points out, like the hot yoga type people who might have a salaried job and not really thinking about how our modern hustle culture really works or how there are other sectors of the economy and other em employment situations where that just doesn't make sense. And, you know, I actually would be concerned that mandating a four hour or four day work week could potentially um, force more people into doing extra jobs or working a second career in those other three days. It's interesting when you look at the statistics, though, of where it has been um, implemented. People mostly tend to use this extra day for leisure, housework, and personal stuff, um, and less so for side hustles and volunteering or educational pursuits. So I think there's a question of what sort of fraction or, or demographics of our economy we're talking about when we're looking at this, because it sounds to me like we're talking about salaried employees and ignoring the fact that for a lot of people, a second job or doing an, being an Uber driver or figuring out how to supplement that income might be something that's a necessity. Well, it is important for people to be able to take off and be recharged. And also work yeah. is not necessarily the goal of society, right? We have, you know, you want to flourish as a human being. And so I think if the conversation is is the five-hour work week the only way to do things? I think we should all agree it's not, and that yeah, five definitely. is just as arbitrary as four. And you know, if you're a surgeon, you might work six days a week. If you're you know somebody who's a consultant, you may work two hour two days a week. And and also the day is such a strange way of looking at this, right? We're we're mm -hmm. not talking about just days, like how many hours, and you know, are those hours bunched together or are they spread apart? It's obviously, we, it's a gross simplification of this debate to just talk about yeah. it in the amount of days. And when you look at these studies and you look at the debate in, in the media, it's often just so simplified. And obviously, as we talked about, it's specific to the industry. Now, something you said made me think of this company called Perpetual Guardian, which is in New Zealand, and they manage trusts, wills, estates. And in 2018, they let, they let their employees work four days a week while being paid for five. And there's this wonderful book called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, and he writes up about it. And he quotes some really interesting data, even for those that are skeptical of some of these moves sometimes, that talks mm -hmm. about how people who took that extra day off in the four days that they were working were less distracted, more focused, more productive. And so, it, and he describes in detail and we'll put this in the show notes, exactly what was going on. And I think it's pretty compelling, but it is mm -hmm. anecdotal. Oftentimes it's the subjective experience of people reporting out, although in that case, I think there were external observers as well. So that's helpful. And this gets to, to my biggest question around all of this, which is the quality of the data that we have. And so this is a good opportunity for us to turn to the study yeah. that I think has been making waves lately. Yeah, so this is the largest study of its sort ever conducted um, over six months of a trial period of four-day work weeks across 33 companies. And it was pretty positive in what it found. Um, revenue went up by 37.55%. 
uh, subjective ratings of employees of their work-life balance on a scale from one to five went up from 2.98 to 3.76. So they feel like they have a better work-life balance. Their stress went down from 3.15 to 2.95. So they're, that actually was lower than I thought it would be, or a lower change than I thought it would be. I would have thought that people would have felt considerably less stressed with an extra day, but, um, you know, it's, it's small, but there, and 96.6% of the employees wanted to continue this. So super popular across the board. Um, so, I mean, I think it in, if, if these 33 companies are representative of, or if your company might fall into a, a part of the economy where this is actually representative, then maybe it's something to consider. But I also think like a little free market testing here could be interesting because if Microsoft tomorrow was just like, we're going to have a four day work week, I wonder how many people from other competing tech companies might say, I'm going to go work for Microsoft. Like I, I think employees could run this more so than legislators potentially. Well, my sense is if this truly does make people more productive, the market will do it. Yeah, like exactly. Why wouldn't they? It, it makes, you know, you know, and that's less cost. Like having your mm-hmm. people work, even if you're paying them five days, there are other costs with people showing up, especially if they're showing up in person. Yeah. So it's in everybody's interest if this data is as compelling as some people are claiming to implement it. And I think we should ask, like, why haven't they yet? Is it, you know, one, on one side, people could say our culture is so strong against this. And the, mm-hmm. I keep saying four hours, so shout out to Tim Ferriss. I apologize to our audience. I keep confusing four hour, four day. Four day work week, although four hour, I guess, is also an option. So there are some people who will be like, our cult- culture is so strong that even when it's in the economic interest of these companies, they still don't make the change. I'm skeptical of that. A part yeah, of me I just agree. thinks that the data isn't strong enough yet. And the study that you talked about, I have so many questions about it. Number one is like, what, yeah. what workers aren't going to say it's positive? Mm-hmm. Like, by and large, people are going to, you pay people for four days to come in at five. Most of them are going to say they like that. Now, it's interesting that the managers also like it, but they're also employees. So if they have to show up four days, even if there's a trade off and it makes it a little harder to manage, you know, that's still an incentive that needs to be disentangled in the data. But the biggest question I have about this data, Ricky, is they claim, first of all, there's, this is a study organized by the Four Day Week Global Foundation. Yeah. It is important, though, that they worked with researchers from Boston College, University of College Dublin, and Cambridge University, and uh, were completely walled off, it seems, from tinkering with this research and all this, and it went through the independent review of these universities, et cetera. So that's less what I'm skeptical of. What I'm really skeptical of, though, is they claim that there's like objective data here. Like, So they, they claim to go beyond the subjective experiences of people reporting out, but then they quote things like the revenue increases during this period of time, et cetera but they don't include a control group. So mm-hmm. I don't know what to compare it to. So if revenue went up in this company, which by and large, like if you're successful companies, your revenue is generally going up more than it's going down. Yeah. And over the past few years, although this was 2022, a very difficult year economically, over the past few years, it's more likely that companies are, are doing well, especially like if they're companies that were selected, they might've been selected because they had some history uh, of being successful for a, a number of years. So I don't know what the control group is. So I don't know what to compare revenue increases or increases employees than um, just in isolation. Ricky, one other thing about this study is that they measured absenteeism, measured as sick and personal days per employee per month. And this fell from 0.56 in the comparison period to just 0.39 during the trial. But the obvious question is if there are fewer days Mm-hmm. that you're working there are fewer days you call out and yeah they just didn't they didn't do enough to 
report out like is this statistically significant or not given that there's one fewer day a week so there's obviously major problems with this data yeah i think it's also just in general um the studies and the anecdotes that we have here are still so sporadic and kind of all over the place but that's also reflective of the fact that like the situation for any given employer in any given job is considerably different even company to company or person to person but i think we should talk about some of the countries that have implemented some degree of this Um, on a legislative level. The United Arab Emirates is a great example. Um, They have a four and a half day work week for public sector employees, which I think, you know, it makes a little more sense to do it first for the public sector where the government is paying the checks and not require private sector employees to um, do the same or employers. But they're the first nation to roll something out on this scale. And let's hear how that went. So in the UAE, the shorter work week was implemented for government. We did not impose it on private sector. What happened, interestingly, that 50% of the private companies followed the decision. And even some of the global companies who have offices in the UAE took that practice and applied it in their offices mm. across the world. Mm. So I agree with you, there should be a coordinated effort from the private sector, public sector to make it easy for people to adapt, whether they have children in school or they're working in the private sector or the public sector. So this is also a lesson learned from the UAE. So I think this is an interesting example of how the government can do what's kind of within their own sphere of paying their own employees for a shorter work week. Um, Four and a half days, I think, would be different from saying four, potentially. But this is a good example of the fact that if you do that, if you introduce that concept into your economy, that, you know, I don't think that these private employers are doing it just to be charitable and be good people. I think it's probably because there's a degree of um, desire from employees that, you know, if somebody starts doing it, then someone else might want it. And you might be able to poach employees even with this incentive. So I think it's it, this is the policy guiding the, the free market, I think. Well, Ricky, let's shift gears and talk about the hospice industry. And there's some incredible reporting coming out from Ava Kaufman at ProPublica, Ben Poston and Kim Christensen from the LA Times. And we had a chance actually to talk to Ben and we'll play some clips from that interview. But there is some really dark and scary things happening in the hospice industry. And to take a step back, uh, hospice care itself at its most basic level is intended to be end of life care for those who have six months or less to live. And mm-hmm. this is non-curative care. So the patient is not expected to recover. And it's basically meant to ease somebody's uh, last few months of life, and it includes pain yeah. management, counseling, et cetera, when it's at its best, Ricky. But we aren't at our best right now. Yeah. I mean, I think it, there's definitely a very strong historical reason why we've done this, which is that there's been outrage over how people who are clearly dying and are terminally ill are are in hospitals and just in intensive care units, isolated from the people that they love, um, kind of hopelessly being medicated. And so for some people, this going to hospice and choosing comfort over treatment might be something that's just a, an easier way to spend your last days rather than be cooped up in in a hospital unit. So there is um, 
a, a reason why people, half of all Americans, in fact, end up dying in hospice care or going into hospice care at some point. Right now, it's a $22 billion industry. Medicare covers 90% of all costs. Um, and so these are people who forego treatment coverage from Medicare and are instead kind of coasted through this situation, which obviously for their family members or people responsible for them, that can be a relief that you know, Medicare is there to take care of them. But as a result, Medicare is paying out these hospice providers and they're making money off of a very profitable industry. Um, 20 patients, a small hospice provider can make more than a million dollars a year. And despite the fact that half of the people in our country will end up in this form of care, 87% of hospices have been found to have deficiencies in the care that they provide. 20% um, hit the threshold of potential endangerment in some way, shape, or form, and one in three providers had complaints filed against them. And so I think this is really just a, a sector that is ripe for abuse. These are people in exceptionally vulnerable circumstances. Even the family members that would otherwise be advocating for them might be um, kind of just not in their best mental state of clarity when someone that they love is dying. And so this is certainly a place where, where if the wrong person is a provider, this could be really tragic. So there are many layers, Ricky, to this fraud, and, and I'll name a few of them. One is that these big hospice companies, sometimes small hospice companies, are lying to Medicare sometimes by faking patients and sometimes mm -hmm. pocketing government funds. Uh, the biggest, I think, fraud here that's going on, and the one that I'm most concerned about, is that companies are lying to patients themselves, and they're trapping them in these arrangements and cutting them off from curative treatment. Because once you go to the hospice care you basically are foregoing that other treatment. That seems to be the biggest issue here, at least the one yeah. I'm most concerned about. And there's also like this cottage industry of paper hospices where people are selling kind of fraudulent businesses to each other and all that, which then creates all these downstream problems when those people try to turn those businesses into hot, uh, to profitable businesses. And the Office of the Inspector General in 2018 at HHS and, uh, estimated that inappropriate billing itself by hospice providers had cost taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, one example of this comes from Frisco, Texas, where the FBI investigated a hospice care provider for essentially trying to um, short circuit the Medicare repayment problem, which basically Medicare says we only want to pay for truly the end of someone's life in hospice care, which they define as up to six months. But sometimes people end up for whatever reason in hospice before truly the end of their life and they go beyond six months, at which point, because these hospice centers are continuing to take in money from them for this long period of time, they need to start paying Medicare back if they're, 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 a patient is there for too long. And so this case in Frisco, Texas, it turns out the owner was pressuring staff members and nurses to purposefully overdose patients who had overstayed the six months period of time and effectively attempt to kill them in order to prevent this repayment problem. So you have the perverse incentive of wanting someone to be there for as long as possible up until six months until they become this inconvenience who's now costing you money. And so just the way that I think the Medicare system and the free market here are interacting is exceptionally unhealthy and creating these completely perverse and frankly disgusting incentives. Yeah. And this is a relatively new industry, which is really interesting. Yeah. So part of the issue here is I think the industry has grown much faster than Congress and our government's ability to keep track of what's going on. So the first hospice opened in 1974 
And mm-hmm. by 1981, hundreds more had opened. And then uh, Reagan, I think, made the first like sort of government innovation here that that really spurred dramatic growth when he recognized uh, these hospices and authorized Medicare to cover the costs. And from then forward, you know, it's off to the races. And then at a critical point, what used to be nonprofits running these things became it became now dominated by for-profit institutions in recent years. And that's where things get really ugly. And you know, we talked about one particular form of fraud being one that particularly stood out to us. So let's come back to that. And we talked to Ben Poston, who's the investigative reporter at the Los Angeles Times, and he basically outlines what's going on here when people sign up often for these hospices. When you are unknowingly signed up for hospice, you you sign away your rights to life-saving medical treatment. So if you are unknowingly in hospice, and then it turns out that you have cancer, you have a serious ailment, you don't really have any recourse because you're basically, you've already been deemed terminal. So you're not going to get any like curative care. You're not going to get any sort of life-saving care. And these people who are running these fraud scams, like they ha- they know that. So they're not only are they are they doing using are they defrauding the government to make a quick buck, you know, through Medicare, but their people are ending up in really dangerous situations. Yeah, to put a fine point on this, Ricky, in one of these articles, they talk about this company called Aceracare. It's a national chain where this woman named Marsha Farmer worked, and she would solicit recruits whether they were near death or not, according to this mm-hmm. reporting. And she said, quote, we'd find rundown places where people were more on the poverty line. You're looking for uneducated people, if you will, because you're able to provide something to them and meet a need, end quote. And she talked about how she didn't want to mention death in her opening pitch or even hospice if she could. She just talked about like, here are all these benefits, medications, nursing visits, you know, supplements, housekeeping, all for free. Why not just try it, right? It's almost mm-hmm. like a drug dealer. And then people yeah. find themselves into these arrangements and often they're they're horrible or they're just not providing the treatments that they're they're promising and they're bilking the government tons of money for it. Yeah, this is like such an underreported issue. I mean, it just the fact that we're reading LA Times articles from this journalist who did great investigative reporting, but this is not like this has been a while ago and nobody's really picking up on this and talking about this because it's an uncomfortable conversation. Nobody really wants to confront the fact that half of us will eventually end up in these facilities if something doesn't change. Talking about death is not really something that our culture is very comfortable about. And then there's also a sense that among regulators, like you might be wondering how have we let this go for so long, but considering that Medicare is covering 90% and these people, these are, they're in dire straits. It's the last day of their lives for their families. They might've been suffering enormous financial hardship through medical bills for years to get to this point. And so for a lot of people, this is a relief in a, in a sad way. And so nobody regulators don't want to be the person to come in and crack down and, and ruin that thing that, you know, so many people now depend on in order to they hope give someone they love or even themselves a more comfortable end of their life. And so there's a huge lack of oversight that we're seeing, but there's also an incentive not to be the person to come in and kind of say, let's, let's blow up the system that so many people depend on. Yeah. And you know, one other really egregious data point that just makes me extremely angry is the reporting talks about this sort of dumping practice where 
they would discharge patients who stayed too long. So essentially mm-hmm. they're signing up healthier people, like people who aren't necessarily on their quote unquote deathbed. And then if yeah. they stayed too long past the point where they would get reimbursed for it, they would just dump them from the program. Uh, and they'd lose things like diapers, pain medications, wheelchairs, sometimes nursing care, um, hospital grade beds that they would have. So these are some of the worst people in yeah. society. And you mentioned, all right, like, not enough people are paying attention to this. Absolutely true. And it's in part because, you know, sometimes we as a news consuming populace, we're, we're more likely to click on that article of, you know, Bobert and Marjorie Taylor Greene getting in a fight in a bathroom than, you know, this really ugly reality of the end of life. It's like the kind of story that you really don't want to live in, right? You're like, you mm-hmm. don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about either you or your loved ones at the end of life, but it couldn't be more important. We have the largest yeah. group of retirees entering retirement now than we've Absolutely. ever had and ever will have. We all will die. So this mm-hmm. is the thing that's going to affect all of us in one form or another, whether we call it hospice care or not. And so Congress finally is taking a look at it. Members of Congress have called on HHS to investigate immediately. There's trade associations who've collaborated and asked for 34 regulations, including a targeted moratorium and new hospices. Totally makes sense. If you look at this reporting, there's just, these things are popping up, then they, they yeah. you know, once they reach a limit, they get a new license and it seems particularly egregious in Arizona. Uh, LA had its issue with it. Uh, Yeah, just to give a sense, LA had 618 providers versus New York City or LA County versus New York City has seven. So there are pockets of this country where people have determined that this is a potentially profitable industry to get into and it just explodes. We have these paper hospices or what they're called, which is basically like a turnkey ready hospice that you can just run because that's fun. And then bill and bill and bill Medicare until you get audited and shut down just without real recourse. So this is obviously an ugly, ugly issue. You know, HHS, when they look at this, and I know that like you could cite, my mom works in nursing homes and and I spent a lot of time in nursing homes. So I know like what a violation is, is tricky. But HHS reports that from 2012 to 2016, health inspectors cited 87% of hospices for deficiencies and 20% of them had lapses serious enough to endanger patients. So the data here isn't great. And this is just one of the many reasons why, I know I've said this on the podcast before, we don't treat the elderly well in this country. Part part of it's cultural, where we just are so individualistic and we move away from our parents and we don't live in these communities anymore where we have these strong ties and look out for each other. And part of it's also economic, Mm -hmm. uh, where we have created all these incentives where people, you know, once you're not able-bodied and contributing economically to society, you become more and more vulnerable to predatory schemes. Yeah. And also, I mean, it is a sad byproduct of the fact that people are living longer often in very compromised scenarios because of modern medicine, which obviously is a good thing. But as a result, a lot of families have this burden of taking care of someone that they they can't afford to or they don't have the time to. And so it's really tragic. But I think there are a lot of room or places for reform um, and places for oversight, including reevaluating the Medicare system and how we're just funding this without really any recourse for the people taking advantage, Um, putting some more safeguards in place, like as you mentioned, moratoriums on new hospices, um, making sure that complaint lines for people who feel that they or someone they love are being violated have a place to go and have access to that, and um, also more on-site surveys. So I think there is room for oversight, but the cultural conversation around the fact that this is a huge problem needs to happen first. Yeah, you add this to the fact that 
the other end of the spectrum, nursing homes, have their own mm-hmm. issue. Like, there are all sorts yeah. of problems in nursing homes. We talked about this a little bit. One of the problems, and I, and I saw this firsthand um, from my mom's experience working in some of these places, is people, people often sign over their assets. And in some of these nursing homes, the arrangement is you sign over your assets, and if you stay, if you die a year later or you die 20 years later, you lose your assets in some of these arrangements. And so it's particularly egregious. And so maybe we'll do a segment on that at some point. One last note before we finish this segment is if you're concerned about someone you love or the potential um, hospice providers that you might be looking at in your own family, um, ProPublica does have a guide that we'll put in our show notes for how to make sure that you can safeguard as best as possible against some of these abuses we've mentioned. Ricky, one you know not very well-known organization that I have a lot of respect for is this group called Populous. And one of the people over there is a guy named Todd Rose. We talked about him in this sort of collective illusion segment we did a while ago where we talked about like the difference between what we think conventional wisdom is versus what it actually is. Really awesome stuff. We're hoping to have Todd on at some point to talk about both that data and the data we're about to dive into here. They just came out with a survey, Ricky, that just challenges a lot of conventional wisdom about K-12 education and what Mm -hmm. parents and kids are looking for within the system. Um, Yeah. So this is called the Purpose of Education Index, which has some really interesting revelations. Um, They basically rank a lot of priorities of what various people might think should be the number one priority of of a K to 12 education and the public education that so many of our children are provided. And when you look at the most important things that consistently come up for people, it's becoming more and more every year. They've conducted this for several years now, practical skills, like how do you cook a meal? How do you make an appointment? How do you manage your personal finances? Like how do you just be a productive member of society? And I think one of the most interesting revelations here is if you compare it just to 2019, College preparedness was the 10th highest priority that people ranked. And today, out of 57 possible uh, priorities, it's all the way down to 47. So that's a marked shift in just a couple of years. I think the pandemic is a part of that. But um, by and large, I think the biggest takeaways here are people are saying, Um, college is not the be all end all of what our education system is supposed to be doing. And also it's not just that we want this to be a better system. We want it to be fundamentally different and more prioritizing practical skills and the day-to-day things that are required to be an adult functional human being. And by and large, I would say my own experience going through the education system recently, um, I very much feel the same. (laughs) I agree. You know, number one ranked here, is that that what you call those uh, practical skills? They include personal finances, preparing a meal, making an appointment, etc. When I think about my high school experience, the class that affected me the most was a class on finance by this teacher named Mr. Quista, who's since passed away, and. I learned about 401ks and Roth IRAs mm-hmm. and interest-bearing accounts and things like that. Yeah. That affected me more than anything else I ever did. So some of the more other interesting findings here, you know, number four on the, the parents' list was basic reading, writing, arithmetic, preparing for a career, number six, effectively plan and prioritize to achieve a goal, number 11, competitive in the local, local job market, number 12. So... Obviously, these are wrapped up in college, so it's a little tricky, right? Like, Mm -hmm. these are just different ways of framing outcomes and, like, you know, what do these parents think a college education is essential or useful to get the job that they want their kids to have? These are all follow-up questions I would want. 
But I do think like the emphasis on practical skills is the sort of blinking red light here because we are not doing that really well in our K to 12 system right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the past couple of years and the conversation around student loans and the pandemic kind of derailing people's educational experiences. I mean, certainly for myself, I dropped out of college. I would never have dreamed that would have been my life trajectory. That's just so remote from where I was a couple of years ago. Like this is demonstrative of the fact that there is a huge trend away from viewing higher education as a necessity in the BL and all of your success as a person. Um, if you look at the statistics of students that are planning to go to college, high school students, It was 71% in May of 2020, like right around when the pandemic started. And we still thought, oh, maybe things will be normal soon. And now it's all the way down to 51% by January of 2022, a year ago. So that's just over the span of months in the scheme of history here. And that's a 20% drop in the amount of students that want to go to college. Meanwhile, um, that same survey found that 89% of high school students wanted better career preparedness in their education. And so I think that's a really important shift and demand that people are increasingly having. I, I feel the same. I have to say going to NYU as an 18 year old kind of was my crash course in how life works and practical skills because you're a New Yorker that's just kind of plopped in the middle to fend for yourself. And that was a great life experience for me. But had I not had that, I wouldn't know so many basic fundamental things about like what it is to really be an adult human. And I like, for example, this is not just me anecdotally, only one in four students have a personal finance education, like what you were discussing. Um, And only eight states have mandated it up until this year. Now that's gone up to 15 states, um, which tends to be interestingly more red states that are uh, requiring personal finance education. But I think there are so many fundamental questions that we just like glaze over when we're talking about like trigonometry or chemistry. Like what well, is Rick, a credit Ricky, score? I can explain the blue state thing because yeah. finance is an outgrowth of white supremacy, just ah, like punctuality perfect. and gravity and mm-hmm. all these other things that we can't teach anymore in our schools. Exactly. But I digress. There's one interesting part of this data that dovetails with something we talked about two weeks ago on the Citizen Stewart podcast, which is number seven on this list, very interesting, is parents believe that students should advance only when they have demonstrated mastery of a subject. Now, mm-hmm. I find this fascinating because we have social promotion, essentially, in most places. We, we pretend to say that we hold kids back, but it almost never happens. And more importantly, we don't advance kids when they master material faster, right? And so we talked about on the Citizen Stewart podcast, we were both, Chris and I were making the case for what they call competency-based learning, which is just a jargony way of saying what these parents are asking for, which is if you're advanced, you move faster. If you're struggling more, you move slower. And that's what parents want. Most educators like this too, because it allows them to free themselves of that 30 person class where where one kid might not read and the other kid is reading Harry Potter, right? Mm -hmm. Like this helps all people. And there, Ricky, there are also people who are reading that data and the fact that standardized tests was ranked near the bottom 49. Yeah. They're saying, well, this is parents saying they don't want tests. Well, I'm like, read this carefully. They're saying they want kids to advance when they demonstrate mastery. How are you going to demonstrate mastery? Are you just going to ask the kid, do you know it? Obviously you need to assess that. It's just a different way of testing, which I think is a better way of testing. Mm-hmm. And also people don't say like, what's the purpose of the healthcare system? It's to give blood pressure tests, right? They're not going to answer that. Yeah. The blood pressure test is a means to an end, not the end in itself. So of course people aren't going to rank it very high. Yeah. And certainly when you get up to like high school levels, at least in my school, um, there was a lot of 
spending your high school days preparing for SAT tests and like thinking about how to have these arbitrary metrics that a college application officer might value you more for rather than actually doing something that is going to affect you in your day-to-day life. Like, I think there are just so many things that are glaringly absent, like adequate nutrition conversations in school, household management. I know that home ec is kind of a loaded term just because we think back to the days where it was like, girls will go in one room and cook and boys will go in the other room and chop wood or whatever they were up to. I'm not sure. But I think that there is like gender neutral home ec that could be provided to people. And just knowing like, you're going to eat three days, three times a day for the rest of your life, like at least figure out how to curate healthy meals, which is something that clearly our country is struggling with personal finance, like one-on-one very basic stuff. Like I didn't really know what a credit score was or how interest rates worked or the difference between a checkings and a savings account. And I think those are all really important things to just be a person in the Mm -hmm. real world. And then also just like the fundaments of being a citizen and what does it mean to pay taxes and what are all these forms that you're going to suddenly start getting in the mail or how do you make sure you're registered to vote or how do you make Mm -hmm. your, your democratic vote count as much as possible and like really important stuff that just is so day to day that we completely ignore. Right. Right. And I think, I think all the, that sort of those granular takeaways, like what people are asking for is more interesting to me than what they're not asking for, right? So many of the headlines around this are around parents are like eschewing college or whatever. And there is some data, like there are fewer people enrolling in college in the past few years Mm -hmm. uh, coming out of the K-12 system than before. But, you know, 2021, Gallup poll found 54% of parents would prefer that their child pursue a four-year college degree. So the majority of parents still want that, at least as of 2021. And I would want to keep an eye on this data, right? Like, what does the data really say? Mm-hmm. Uh, are, and, you know, one theory could be all this debate around student loan forgiveness over the past couple of years has maybe affected parents. And maybe now they aren't seeing the value that they saw before they're, because they're being shown how costly this could be for kids and how it can yeah. carry with kids for the rest of their lives. Like, that's actually possible. I'm not sure the the authors of the study or the data itself are even suggesting that some of these articles seem to be suggesting it. They could be right. I just haven't seen enough data on that yet. Yeah. I mean, the student loan forgiveness conversation, student loan and debt in general is just like a kind of case in point situation where we've fundamentally failed students by not giving them an understanding of basic economics and finance and what these loans that they're signing when they're in high school mean for the rest of their lives. And we've gotten to a point where it's requiring government correction in some shape or form. Obviously we've discussed at length that I think there are some better solutions to that than others, but like that's case in point. Like we're not teaching kids how to arrive at a point where even if they are the kind of kid who should be going to college or is super motivated that they can make an informed decision. And so we're just fundamentally like failing kids with the basics of every single day and the practical skills, which by the way, every single year that they've done this purpose of education index, the number one thing is, is practical skills that people uh, say that they want, which is different and not better education. It's fundamentally different. And I think that this requires um, some real dig. uh, I think this requires some digging deep um, in the education front about what we're even doing and what the point of all of this is. (laughs) Well, on that front, I've got a couple of quick, announcements as we close this out. One is next week we're launching a newsletter specific to education issues. And the first post I'm putting up is about redesigning high school, where I articulate in some detail what I would do if I were designing a high school today. And it gets at a Mm -hmm. lot of stuff that these parents talk about. And I actually wrote it before I got this data. So actually this data 
uh, actually can help me add a little bit of flavor to that piece. Two is, if you really love these education discussions that we have on Lost Debate, subscribe to the Citizen Stewart podcast, where we talk about it every week. So it comes out every Tuesday, and we basically debate, discuss, get get into a bit of a like a very heated discussion often. Uh, Chris comes from the left. Uh, he, he hates it that I characterize in a way, but I think it's accurate. Um, so if you ever want to hear me get shit from the left, he's, uh, he's rather hilarious about giving me a hard time. So subscribe to that. Ricky, you've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Well, Ricky, we have a voicemail uh, from this segment we did on the Florida education bills uh, from, uh, I think it was a couple episodes ago. So let's play that clip. Hey, I'm a longtime listener of the podcast, uh, and I just wanted to call in about last week's um, Don't Say Gay episode. Uh, you know, I really appreciated hearing the first half, uh, how, you know, not all things we were worried about as queer people ended up materializing and really uh, enjoyed hearing all the points that you had to make. Uh, I felt slightly more at ease. Um, but then I did feel as though uh, a queer lens was lacking from the conversation and that uh, a crucial viewpoint was missing. Um, you know, speaking as a gay man, I know that while parents' rights are very important, uh, when you're a queer kid and figuring out your sexuality or gender, your relationship with yourself is undergoing um, such a huge amount of flux. And one of the most terrifying things you also have to worry about is that your relationship with your parents will change as well. Um, I myself had really supportive parents and still waited to tell them until I felt the time was right. Um, so forcing teachers to tell parents can take that agency away from the child in question. And while I appreciated the examples mentioned, none of them talked to the kids or the teachers in question. So it felt very one-sided uh, without getting to the heart of why they kept it from their parents. Um, another thing I just wanted to mention was the term transition was used a lot without examples or clarification of what actual changes the kids were going through. Um, so that nuance was lost. Obviously, when you're talking surgery, that's very, um, you know, it's very specific. And then, you know, hormones is also specific or, or changing pronouns is very specific. So I felt like, um, you know, defining the, the term transition would have been uh, important. But I really appreciate the work that you guys do and uh, all so so fantastic so thanks for listening to this and having this voicemail line and i wish you all the best and keep up the great work thanks so much thank you so much for this voicemail this makes me think about all right what is my standard here and i'm not sure this is what i believe ricky but in listening to this really thoughtful voicemail it makes me i remember in that segment i could be wrong that i was like hi there's there's equities involved here i'm not sure what to Mm -hmm. do and the two points come together for me like well when do I think it is appropriate to notify a parent? So if you're a kid who's uh, in the closet, do I think it's appropriate to notify the parent? No. Uh, do I think you're a kid in the closet and you're uh, seeking mental health counseling? Uh, I think that the act of seeking mental health counseling within the school, I would imagine it by law, you have to tell the parents, I don't, and I think like what you tell the parents, I think is a, is an interesting debate, but I. Yeah. Oh, so what sorry. the legislation um, requires is that 
they need to inform the parents if there's any new like counseling or like essentially like you're, you're going, you're not just in a casual conversation. Like you're going to a, a counselor or you're talking to school officials just to clarify. Um, so these are obviously it's social transitioning and which is a certainly an important nuance where um, like in the examples that I spoke to these parents, like they're changing pronouns or they're talking about where they will sleep in an overnight field trip versus um, of course, these teachers are not making medical decisions for these these mm-hmm. minors that would be um, grotesquely inappropriate. And that's certainly not, not what's happening. But I think like it is a really delicate balance. I think it's important to mention that there is a, a clause in the bill that requires if there's any sort of sense that there could be abuse or neglect or harm in the household, they're not required to inform. But I think it's it's definitely true that the, the parents that I spoke to for this article are the worst case scenarios where like one of them, the only rationale was that the fact that the father was Catholic was why they kept mm. this information about social transition from the parent. And so I think it is like the reason that I'm highlighting this is not because I think these worst cases are demonstrative of what's happening in schools by and large. But I think these are the sorts of cases that people who, I mean, I'm very live and let live. I truly like believe in the, the right of adults to live their life as they choose. And I think these worst case scenarios of teachers overstepping boundaries, which is certainly isolated, could be weapons for people to discredit like LGBT community members as a whole and that making sure that legislation is in place to balance the rights of teachers and parents and students is really important but certainly it's delicate and certainly there's nuances to just talking to somebody because you need someone to be a confidant and going for um, like long-term counseling or fundamentally changing the way that you identify at school versus at home. But this is certainly a a super well taken point. And I do think it gets to just how sensitive this issue really is for people. Right. And you make me think about this social transitioning, right? And this is such a thorny question, but if a student's asked for different pronouns in the classroom, or there's some other evidence of social transitioning in a classroom, there are 20, 25 other students in that classroom who have parents. Mm -hmm. There's also the question of privacy there, right? Like yeah. at that point, if they tell their parents, so their parents tell other parents. So there, there are issues there too. Like I'm not sure what we could do to stop that. Yeah. And it's hard pressed to imagine a parent coming to the school unless there's a genuine safety concern asking parent, like what's going on in the classroom and what is, you know, Sally, you know, like, you know, tell me what's going on with Sally. And then keeping that information to parents is very hard to do. Yeah. Like I understand. And, and I think I'd like just sort of inclusion on this one. I, I'm still not sure what I believe on this. I want to preserve the right of kids to have somebody to talk to who's not their parents mm-hmm. in confidence. Uh, it's, when it's a non-medical, when once it gets medical stuff going on, I think it gets very, very tricky. But I want people to, whether it's like you know, mental health counseling or medical counseling, it gets very, very tricky legally and ethically to not notify parents. But I want kids to have somewhere to go to talk to talk through these issues and feel like they're in a safe place. Um, And I also want parents to feel like they know essential information about their kids, especially anything to to go to the point about what's a transition, anything that's permanent for sure. I would want the parents to know. And of course, like I don't want to create a straw man. That's, that's not what we were talking about. And I want to clarify that because maybe it wasn't totally clear when we were talking about it, but thank you so much for this voicemail. It was great. More of this. And, if I got any of that wrong just now, send in another one because I, I, I'm, I'm just kind of responding in real time and just trying to talk through the issues in response to this. But uh, on the Citizen Stewart show or here, one thing I do promise is we've been covering this Florida stuff for a while. Um, you've made me think about, you know, who the next few guests we want to have on are. So um, 
send us a note if you've got really good ideas for guests that we could talk to. But with that, Ricky, I think that's the end of this show. Uh, this is Thursday, right? So that would mean so. we're back at this on Tuesday. Yeah. And it will be, the audience will be sad to know, my last recording from Costa Rica. For you. So, uh, you know, shed a tear for me. <laughs> and then I'll be heading to San Diego. So if you're out there in San Diego, your listeners send me ideas of stuff to do. I'll be there for the month of February. So my tough life continues. Goodbye, everybody. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. 